0: This podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello, and welcome to Master the MRCPCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need to know topic. I'm Emma, the Digital Education Fellow at Great Ormond Street, and your host for today's podcast. This episode is the second on common neonatal surgical conditions. This time, we'll be covering abdominal wall hernias and congenital diaphragmatic hernia, covering points in both the gastroenterology and neonatology sections of the MRCPCH curriculum. I'm delighted to be joined once more by consultant paediatric surgeon Miss Dania Mulassari. Thank you so much for coming back again, Dania. Would you like people to get out of this podcast today?
1: For this podcast, I'm hoping that the listeners should be able to get a clear understanding of the key facts about exomphalos and gastroschisis and congenital diaphragmatic hernia. Similar to our previous sessions, we'll cover and brief the embryology, functional implications, clinical presentation, management, and long-term outcomes.
0: Fantastic. So let's start with the abdominal wall hernias, so exomphalos and gastroschisis. Could you start by explaining the anatomical defects with these conditions?
1: Exomphalos is the congenital abdominal wall defect, which is in the midline at the umbilical ring, and this is covered by a sac made up of three layers, which are watertight jelly, amniotic membrane, and peritoneum. This is associated with multiple congenital anomalies in 40 to 80 percent, including some cardiac and chromosomal anomalies, which have a high risk of mortality. Gastroschisis, on the other hand, is the abdominal wall defect usually found to the right of the umbilical cord and typically contains bowel only. This is not usually associated with extra-intestinal abnormalities and the morbidity is lower and related to the extent of bowel abnormalities such as atresia or perforation. Right. Okay.
0: So in gastroschisis, it's just the bowel that's coming out of the abdominal wall with nothing covering it. Whereas with exomphalos, there's a kind of membrane covering. Yep. Can I ask, exomphalos and are the same thing? Because I've heard yes.
1: both terms used. Yes, they, they are the same. Exomphalos is what we use and uh, omphalocele is more an American term used, but yeah, they are
0: interchangeable. Right. Okay. That's really helpful to make clear. Do we know anything about
1: what causes these defects to occur in the first place? That's a tricky one. There is no consensus about precisely which embryological mechanism causes these abdominal wall defects. There are many theories. Currently, for example, the most widely accepted theory is probably one of a combination of embryonic dysplasia along with malfunction of the ectodermal placards as they try to join together. For gastroschisis, the most popular theories are vascular disruption of the right umbilical vein or the right omphalomycentric artery and also yolk sac failure theory. As you can imagine, it's because there's actually not one which is clearly demonstrated to be it that we still have multiple theories going on. Right. Okay. So nobody really knows for certain. That's right.
0: Do we know if there are any particular risk factors for developing these conditions? You've mentioned already that exomphalos can be associated with other congenital abnormalities, but are there any particular important risk factors to be aware of?
1: Yeah, very much so. So in terms of maternal risk factors, for example, maternal age at extremes is identified. So it can be very young under 20 years or older age of over 35 years. Also, other things which have been associated as maternal obesity with a BMI of over 30 and also obesity before pregnancy or glycemic control disorders. With the associated conditions that are also known as risk factors, trisomies, particularly 13, 18, and 21 are the most commonly identified risk factors. Trisomy 18 has actually the highest with about 80 to 90% association with exomcalosis. Others less common are things like Beckwith vitamin, which has been reported between 30 to up to 80% association with the Xomophilus. For gastroschisis, young maternal age increases the risk, especially this has been noted from the 1970s onwards. Tobacco is a consistent agent which increases the incidence of gastroschisis in the fetus. Associated anomalies in gastroschisis reported are mainly bile which are found in about 25%. With some maybe associated with volvulus and necrosis. So that's the general summary of risk and association in the two abdominal wall defects.
0: Right. Okay. Thank you. That makes sense. How is the problem usually picked up? I mean, obviously, once the baby's born, I assume that it's a pretty obvious problem. But is the diagnosis usually made antenatally?
1: Yes, most of the time it is. And studies from UK and some population-based studies in Netherlands would report over 95% of these defects are now detected antenatally by the u- ultrasound itself. And as you say, the postnatal ones, it's pretty straightforward to know what it is once they're born.
0: Yeah, sure. So I guess if they're mostly made with an antenatal diagnosis, that means we can actually start planning and preparing for their birth in a yes. bit more detail. Yeah. How exactly are these neonates managed at the time of birth?
1: So as in any other neonatal resuscitation scenario, you follow the neonatal resuscitation guidelines to keep the babies warm and hydrated. Additional fluid losses because of the surface of either the herniated bowel in the case of gastroschisis or the sac itself in the case of exomphalos. So they can be topical measures such as covering them with a cling film to minimize evaporation. IV fluids, and you may need more than normal expected for that gestational age of IV fluids because of the extra losses. Antibiotics to cover pretty operatively to prepare for the surgery if you're planning to intervene. For exomphilus, then there's also the additional investigations that are looking at associated malformations to assess the ability to be going for general anesthetic and surgery. So echo would be very key for exomphilus. And blood glucose, of course, you do it for every neonate. But for the example, of because of the association with DECO beta And it's even more important to make sure that we have been checking that.
0: So resuscitation and supportive treatment is the mainstay of care initially. And would these neonates always be delivered at a tertiary center?
1: Yes. So they are, depending on the region, it depends. It is a tertiary neonatal center that we recommend delivery. The only difference is whether you're inborn into a surgical center or not. And as you know, in in London, we don't have necessarily all centers who have that ability. So it needs to be in a tertiary neonatal center where they can be resuscitated and stabilized and then be able to transfer across to a surgical center.
0: And then obviously the mainstay of corrective management is then surgery. When do you typically perform the surgery to correct the defect?
1: So in gastrocesis, the surgery is performed as soon as feasible to minimize the drying or matting of the herniated bowel because the longer you leave it, the more difficult it is likely to be to reduce it if there is a chance to primarily reduce and do the repair. In exophilos, first it depends on if there is a primary surgery plan. If it is, again, this is done usually within the first one to two days once the baby has been stabilized. And then could you just outline the surgical procedure for both conditions? Yes. The aim of the surgery for gastroschisis is to achieve reduction of contents into the abdominal cavity. And this may be done in a single or a staged procedure. The single procedure would mean closure of the defect using suture or sometimes what we call a sutureless closure and that you just bring everything together and you can actually use some tape to keep it together. The staged procedure involves placement of an initial silo, which can be preformed or one that is actually made up using materials we have and stitched onto the fascia, in which the contents are then reduced over a period of few days. So you are trying to reduce what's outside the abdomen slowly so that the abdomen has the time to stretch each day. And this is done usually over a period of a few days to a week. And then you come to a point where you can close the defect. For example, in many cases, the defect size is too large and may either need a stage closure, which can, unlike gastroschisis, take much longer. So it's weeks we're talking about and not days. But the stage closure is what we prefer in our institution. The alternative practice, which is followed in several centers, is a conservative management. And that is done by promoting epithelialization of the sac to then follow with definitive repair, which may be done between one and three years of age. Right. Okay. Thank you. That's very helpful. What's the prognosis for
0: infants with both these conditions? Are there any important long-term complications to be aware of?
1: So when we talk about prognosis, usually with the antenatal congenital malformations, we think about it as when we diagnose and when the baby's born. At antenatal diagnosis, the survival to birth for example is actually 40 to 50%, mainly due to the associated comorbidities. But once they're live-born, it comes to about 75%. But there still is 25% risk of mortality. Survival in gastroschisis is much higher, with 90 to 95% for simple gastroschisis. But there is a group which is probably about 15 to 20% of gastroschisis, which is described as complex. And that means there is associated bowel abnormalities, such as a volvulus, atresia, etc., and this group has increased morbidity and mortality there's increased risk of long term liver disease due to prolonged parenteral nutrition requirement and the time they require to get to full enteral feeds time to discharge is longer the other long term health problems that are associated but not directly related to this an example was would be mainly the respiratory effects because there is actually a relative reduction in lung volume because of the intraabdominal compartment not having been used the same way as you would expect in a normal baby. The compliance is reduced. The airway is hyper-responsive. There is associated pulmonary hypertension in 30 to 40%, especially of the giant exomphalos. There is also some neurological effects. Motor development can be significantly delayed, especially in the very large and giant exomphalos. The mental developments now known to be comparable. Other associations with the exomphilosis, inguinal hernia, undescended testes, and rotational anomalies causing obstruction later in life because of the abnormal rotation that they're born with. In gastroschisis, the long-term morbidity include again bowel obstruction, secondary adhesion, or similarly rotation abnormalities. Umbilical hernia, either when we have done a sutureless closure or sometimes because it's weakened where the closure has been done. Gut motility is quite common because of a prolonged period of antenatal contact with the amniotic fluid and therefore a delay in absorption and motility. Then as we mentioned, the PN-related liver disease. More recent studies are also suggesting some effects in some fine motor skills and verbal intelligence at school level. So there's quite a lot still to be known. It's not as simple as we initially thought. It's not just an abdominal wall defect.
0: Right. Okay. And so actually these babies are likely to need long-term follow-up from the whole multidisciplinary team. It's not just a surgical problem. Yes. Okay. Thank you. That was a really helpful overview. Moving on now to congenital diaphragmatic hernia. Could you just give an overview of the pathophysiology of that condition as well as the anatomical defect?
1: So congenital diaphragmatic hernia is characterized by a spectrum of developmental defects in the diaphragm. This is caused by disordered embryogenesis. Results in incomplete fusion of the elements giving rise to the normal diaphragm. So the key events in the pathogenesis of uh, CDH are noted approximately in the humans at about four to five weeks of the gestational age, and the lung development is in the embryonic stage as well. Main defects are in the lung mesenchyme and the interstitium, leading to the abnormal lung development. And that part is what is related to the lung hypoplasia and also the pulmonary hypertension. Then the other part is the disturbance in the development of the pleuroperitoneal force, which leads to incomplete formation of the diaphragm and therefore the subsequent herniation of the abdominal contents into the chest. Okay, so it's kind of a primary lung problem as well as an issue with the actual diaphragm That's forming. Great. Yes. How common is this condition? So the incidence is about one in 2,500 to one in 3,500 live births. Are there any particular risk factors for a baby developing congenital diaphragmatic hernia? Again, congenital affermatic hernia is not a single genetic malformation, so it's very difficult to predict, etc. There are several associations with syndromes, etc., but not one unifying pathology or one genetic condition to be able to predict that. And how do these neonates usually present? Is it
0: usually an antenatal diagnosis or is it something that's diagnosed after birth? In
1: the UK, particularly, this is mostly diagnosed antenatally, but in terms of different papers, they talk about 60 to 80% being diagnosed on the antenatal scans. So there is still a reasonable proportion presenting postnatally. When they present antenatally, parents are counseled using the prognostic factors, which we know to be relevant. Most importantly, the observed to expected lung head ratio. Postnatal presentation in the neonatal period is usually with respiratory distress and a chest x-ray typically then shows the presence of bowel loops in the chest. A small proportion of congenital diaphragmatic hernias can also present later in childhood and occasionally even as adults. And this can be with either respiratory symptoms or with features of bowel obstruction. And then what
0: investigations are important after diagnosis to help with either managing
1: the neonate or planning for surgery? So antenatally, ultrasound is a primary diagnostic tool and sometimes MRI is used for prognostic purposes. Postnatally, a plain X-ray chest is usually sufficient to make the diagnosis. If in doubt, sometimes it's difficult to differentiate from congenital lung malformations or sometimes the question is whether it's actually a diaphragmatic defect or is it just ventration with just thinning of the diaphragm. And in those, an ultrasound or a CT scan can be helpful. Fantastic. And then how do you manage
0: a neonate with a diaphragmatic hernia, both immediately from a resuscitation point of view and then also from the surgical point of view?
1: Initial phase of the postnatal management includes elective intubation, gentle ventilation strategies, so trying to allow permissive hypercapnia, minimizing the barotrauma, and assessment and management of any associated pulmonary hypertension. And once all of these are stabilized, and this can sometimes take several days, the baby would then want to have a surgical repair. In between, this could go to becoming the very stable baby on normal, expected conventional ventilator. On the other extreme, you could go all the way to needing ECMO before you get to the point of repair to get them to that stage. Once you get to that, the surgery is essentially either open or thoracoscopic repair of the diaphragm, starting with reducing all the abdominal contents from the chest, closing the diaphragmatic defect, which can be either primarily using sutures, or if the defect is large, then using a patch to have a tension-free repair. And in terms of the prognosis, does the
0: size of the hernia make any difference to how these babies do either pre-op or post-op? Is the reason for the spectrum related to the size of the hernia, or is it more complex than that
1: and related to the kind of underlying lung disease? A bit of both, because we now know that it definitely does to do with the underlying lung, how hyperplastic it is and what's the extent of pulmonary hypertension that's associated with it. But more recent studies are definitely showing a link between the size of the defect and how poor the lungs are. So it is not saying that the reason is the size of the defect, but the size of the defect seems to be a very good marker to be able to prognosticate the extent of support, morbidity and even mortality. Right. Okay, that makes sense. And then in terms of the
0: timing of the surgery, obviously, it's important to stabilize these neonates first. But is there any benefit to doing early surgery in terms of does it minimize the development of pulmonary hypertension if you go in there early or does it not seem to make very much difference?
1: Not really. On the other hand, we know that there is a short period when things can seem to be slightly better before they get worse. So generally, we observe them for the first 24 to 48 hours to make sure that we are not embarking on a big surgery and an anesthetic at the time that things are just starting to get worse. There was initial evidence to suggest that immediate early surgery is probably harmful, but more recent evidence suggests that it may not necessarily be harmful, but there's definitely no advantage in trying to do it too early. So our practice would be to observe in the first 24 hours at least to see that things are stable enough for us to then undertake that surgery. But if there is uncertainty about that, there is no harm in waiting to make sure that we have gone through if things are getting worse and then better to get to that phase of an improved and prolonged period of stability, because that is more important in the long run. And the pulmonary hypertension, it, it can become obvious a little bit later. So trying to go in just before it becomes obvious might not be necessarily a good idea.
0: Okay. So the supportive management and making sure the baby's stable is the kind of really important aspect at that stage.
1: Absolutely.
0: What about the long-term prognosis after surgical correction? What does the future hold for these babies and what are the long-term complications that you can see?
1: In uh, diaphragmatic hernia, the long-term complications will include the disease-related morbidity that is from the hyperplastic lungs and the pulmonary hypertension and also associated things such as gastroesophageal reflux because the angle between the esophagus and the stomach is recreated by this artificial diaphragm or the diaphragm that we have patched up. There's also repair related problems such as a recurrence of the hernia from having had an operation itself. So those would be things like additional bowel obstruction. There is a degree of non-rotation again in this. So the rotational abnormality may also present with bowel obstruction related to that. So a few things to bear in mind related to the lung and the diaphragm itself and then to the gut and the operation related parts. Okay, so again, like with your abdominal wall hernias, these babies will need long-term follow-up. Absolutely. And especially with most of them having been on a ventilator for a prolonged period of time, some going to the extent of needing ECMO, etc., there is long-term outcomes, including neurological, audiology and all of those medical things as well to be keeping an eye on.
0: Yeah, sure. Thank you for a a really excellent summary of what sounds like really quite a complex surgical condition. So finishing off with our standard quickfire questions. Firstly, as a pediatric surgeon, what do you feel it's important for a general pediatrician to know about this subject?
1: I think from a perspective of a general pediatrician, the, the main part would be awareness of the presenting features in the absence of an antenatal diagnosis, principles of initial pre-operative management, recognition, and facilitating an early transfer. So it's important also to know what we talked about as the long-term and the post-operative expected parts of morbidity, as quite a few of these children may present to pediatricians much later in childhood after being discharged from the surgical follow-up itself. Right. Okay.
0: Secondly, are there any useful resources that you would recommend to listeners who might want to find out more
1: about these conditions? All of, I think the summary papers are probably best to take from seminars in pediatric surgery because each subsection of these will become very complex. So if they just do a search in seminars or in pediatric surgery and look for the condition, this is going to be very comprehensive covered in a couple of papers within that. Fantastic.
0: And finally, what are your three takeaway learning points from the podcast today? I think
1: based on the three conditions, I would say being able to recognize particularly congenital diaphragmatic hernia presentation postnatally when it's not diagnosed antenatally, because when it's antenatally diagnosed, people are more prepared for and expecting this to happen. The second one would be being aware of the not necessarily surgical, but the other associated comorbidities that go with it and children presenting to you with one of those things and knowing that some of the other things need to be looked at. And probably the final thing is the need to really follow them up in a holistic way, because there are still a lot of the outcomes that we're not completely aware of. And keeping up to date with research that comes out of to think about, you know, child born with an abdominal wall defect, we, which we used to think is an isolated defect, now known to have some neurological consequences when they are 10 years of age. More information is coming up all the time and it's very key for us as pediatric surgeons and pediatricians to keep up to date with these so we can make sure that we can offer the best service to our patients.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important point to end on. So thank you very much for that and for an excellent summary about both abdominal wall hernias and congenital diaphragmatic hernia. So thank you so much again, Daniel. Thank you, Emma. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the GOSH Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.